listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Hello and welcome to Let's Pharmanize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Shane Garrettson. And in the cowboy hat today, I'm Cal Vandegrift. Yes, I had a lot of questions about the cowboy hat, which will probably remain unanswered. <laughs> today, we're going to be talking about COVID-19, Omicron, and some new treatment options. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. There's been a lot of changes with COVID-19 over the past two years. Wow, two years. I think two years ago, we were probably around the same time recording our first episode, which also happened to be about COVID-19. Can you believe it's 2022 already? That's, I'm not even used to that. It's, it's so weird. It's wild. It's it's pretty wild. In these past probably three months or so, we've seen a big uptick in the number of COVID tests that we've been administering because you and I both work in pharmacies. I work in chain. You work in independent. And you said you were you had a lot of experience with the infusions. Tell me a little bit about that because I've, I've mm-hmm. got a blank slate. Yeah. Oftentimes, in particularly North Carolina, but I think it's a nationwide issue, a lot of people before these new COVID pills that we're going to talk about have come out, for mild to moderate cases of COVID for people that have not been vaccinated, they haven't really had a good treatment option. Now, there's been a lot of things that have come out recently, like in the middle of the start of 2021, where we were looking at Regeneron, the Regen COVID-2 treatment. We were looking at some of the other, you know, like bare Paracetinib and jack inhibitors mm-hmm. that were showing efficacy for mild to moderate COVID. But Regeneron specifically, the Regen COVID 2, has still been under emergency use authorization, which has allowed pharmacies like my own, an independent pharmacy that offers infusions to people in their own vehicles, a really wow. nice and seamless way, yeah, uh, to, to get their COVID antibody infusions. For people that have one or more comorbid risks, you know, hypertension, diabetes, what the stuff that you typically expect. And um, yeah, it's a really seamless process, actually. They'll get four infusions over a three-hour period. Um, They can do it in the comfort of their own car as they are testing COVID positive. We don't want them, you know, sitting around in the store. But yeah, it's, it's worked for us. It's done really well. We typically would have anywhere from five to seven appointments a day. We have a pharmacist in our store that's dedicated solely to doing that. Mm-hmm. But as of 2022 starts, we're kind of shifting away from the Regen COVID-2 infusions due to some recent studies that have come out in the middle of December that have now also granted emergency use authorization that we're going to talk about at a good length today. So you mentioned that it's in their cars. That's kind of amazing to me. So how does that actually work? Like I'm, I'm picturing that they have the, like the window rolled down and then like just an IV line into their arm. Where's the, the, the bag? 
so what we'll do, we have a little rack that comes out with the actual okay. infusion. Um, we'll wheel it out with a cart, you know, and, and an infusion. It looks, it looks, you know, it, it does not look bougie, but um, it gets the job done. Typically, what most people do will be the infusion will take anywhere from the actual infusion part of it will take anywhere from like three to five minutes. It doesn't take very long. Oh, wow. Okay. It's, it's just four straight boluses of, of the infusion, but you have to space them over a 30 to 45 minute window. Hmm. So what we typically do is first infusion, they'll open the door, sit on the edge of their car, and they'll just sit there, you know, they'll have the infusion in their arm, and they'll just wait for three to five minutes. And then our pharmacist who works so hard at this, I, I shout out to her. She'll walk away, she'll get, get to the other patient, 34 and 45 minutes later, they'll repeat the process. And they do that until all four infusions have been given. Wow, that's really interesting. That's really cool. And that's, I mean, that's really convenient for these patients who would otherwise not have easy access to this treatment. Yeah, it's 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 a treatment that has been very popular in particularly rural areas mm -hmm. that don't yeah. necessarily have a hospital access. And even the places that do have hospital access, um, it, it's good to catch COVID in the mild to moderate state, which is why these treatments are so popular because the majority of people that are in hospitals on full, uh, you know, oxygen and, and are, are trying to be treated with all of these new antivirals um, in hospital were mild to moderate cases at first, but they didn't get vaccinated and they progressed as severe, which has caused a huge burden on the hospital community. I mean, they're because of now Omicron and and when Delta first came out, every single wave that we've experienced, it has been just riddled with hospitalized patients with COVID. It's it's yeah. it's a crazy and, and it's a it's a true pandemic. And um, I think a lot of the large public doesn't necessarily see that aspect of it. Oh yeah, which is, uh, you know, that's a problem in that's our rough. society. I think we could talk about that one ad nauseum as well. But yeah, uh, yeah it, it's it's a good treatment. Uh, it has been. We've been offering it for, I think, about nine months. But as I said, now we're starting to shift away from that. We keep getting the calls. It's been kind of hard to turn away these COVID-positive patients um, over the last week just because, you know, we're not offering it anymore. The emergency use authorization is probably going to go away at some point this month and mm -hmm. in favor of the new treatments that the U.S. just bought, I think, 10 million actual tablets of wow. the Pfizer combo drug and I think something like three and a half million from Malnapiravir, which is the Merck drug yeah. that's just come out. Yeah. That's really interesting that you have a really diverse experience with the treatment side of COVID-19, whereas mm -hmm. my experience within within the retail chain has been pretty limited in terms of treatment. We'll see periodically prescriptions for like uh, dexamethasone, hydroxychloroquine, yeah. the occasional ivermectin. Recently, we've seen spironolactone and finasteride, yeah. which is really interesting. We that, talked about finasteride a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we did. And so. then they've been using spironolactone as well. And it was a really high dose of finasteride, and it was for a woman of childbearing age. So obviously, we had to ask the question, like, are you pregnant or planning to become pregnant? Mm -hmm. No. And okay, I guess you can take the medication. Like, it's a little bit, it's a high dose. Right. So that's something to be cautious of. But I like the idea of spironolactone being used a good bit because it's it spironolactone has been shown a lot recently to have a lot more benefits than I think most people are giving it credit for. It's been out on the market a long time, obviously, um, you know, as a potassium sparing diuretic, mm -hmm. but it does a lot more than that. I've actually heard recently of of patients with alopecia that are using it for spironolactone with treatment resistant alopecia, like. 
there's only one hair loss drug on the market, right? And it's minoxidil. minoxidil yeah. And recently I've heard for treatment resistant, for some reason, spironolactone helps with hormonal imbalance and is preserving hair loss, which to, to me mind boggled me. I just, interesting. yeah, I heard a case report about it recently. It was, it was really interesting. Well, I, I mean, if it's got like anti-androgen activity, mm-hmm. mm, I'm, I don't know. That's kind of weird. The, the case report was in a female patient. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a hormonal imbalance thing. I'd need to look more into it, but it's just amazing actually what we're finding out. Some of these older drugs that have since, you know, spironolactone isn't exactly a first-line diuretic in most cases. No, I mean, for really especially for yeah, edema yeah. and whatnot. But if they have, you know, hypokalemia, that's totally different. But yeah, we're finding out all these new drugs that have different benefits that I don't think we originally realized. Yeah, that's is, definitely that's definitely something new that's come about with COVID nineteen, which is always really interesting to see. One of the other things that we've been experiencing a lot lately is the at-home tests. Since we have been stocked with the at-home tests periodically, they have been flying off the shelves. Uh, I'd say nine out of the 10 phone calls that I'd get are, do you have at-home COVID tests? Yeah, we get those and too. And it's, it's ridiculous because mm-hmm. we, I mean, <laughs> we just, they just, we cannot keep them. We've had to limit them to two, two per person. And they're still just like, we went through like a box of a hundred, I think within a few hours yeah. the other day, because somebody will come and pick some up and then they'll call their friends and then their friends and family will come and pick some up and then we're, they're just gone. Oh yeah. It's been, it's been kind of crazy. We haven't had as much of an impact. Our independent pharmacy has always been in the business of doing, um, doing tests in store. Mm-hmm. We, we offer them to patients at a little bit higher of a price, but they get the results back pretty immediately. We offer both the antigen and the PCR. Antigens, we typically get back to people in 20 minutes. Yeah. PCR, typically within the hour, we'll get their results back to them. So we've never really had the necessity to offer at-home COVID tests to purchase in the store. Yeah. But it has been a pretty big plague on the on the pharmacy market right now. I, I From what I understand, all patients are calling in. They're just calling different stores wherever they can yep. find them. And they're just yep. like, can, can, you know, do you all offer them? This is like the eighth pharmacy I've called. No one's offering them. And it's not that we don't want to offer them. It's just that it's so hard to get a hold of them right yeah. now. There's just a huge shortage. It's not, the huge shortage of, of supplies in the country right now isn't just limited to commercial goods. It's limited to medical goods, too. And yeah. that obviously is a pretty big impact on us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been pretty wild. We've been seeing a lot of changes over the past few years. And it's not just limited to changes outside of or the changes in our workflow. There have been changes, obviously, to the virus itself. Viruses mutate. COVID is not... It's not highly variable. Like We we talked with Dr. Smith about this back in March. Yeah, exactly. COVID is not as highly variable. It's better at proofreading itself than, Mm -hmm. for instance, like the flu, but it still is subject to those those mutations and those those evolutions. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today is the big one that people have been talking about a lot, the um, Omicron. At least I say Omicron, but you said Omicron. That's what I've understood. And that's, that's fine, too. For how many years we've been doing this podcast, how many times have we mispronounced something or I've mispronounced something? And- well, this isn't this isn't a drug. This is a Greek right. letter of the alphabet. <laughs> and, you know, we, they, they didn't just skip to like Delta and yeah. then Omicron. These are just like the two variants of concern. They, mm-hmm. That's how they've qualified them. So there are like Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon. I think a, I think a theta maybe I don't know if there's a zeta. But it's gone in order since. Yeah, alpha, they're, they're all in down, order. It's yeah. just like those other variants like aren't variants of concern. They're mm-hmm. like either not different enough from the original strain, which I don't know if that's alpha or if that's just original SARS-CoV-2. I yeah. think alpha might be the first variant. I don't even think the alpha probably didn't even make it into the United States. It probably stayed in China. Probably. Then, yeah, it, that's very very possible. Um, so Delta came from. 
India, and then Omicron came from South Africa. Mm-hmm. That's just where they uh, originated. And I, what, that's what we're going to talk about today. So Omicron. A lot of people have been talking about it. So Omicron is theorized to be about 10 times as infectious as the original SARS-CoV-2 virus. So that's infectious, not necessarily deadly or virulent. It's about twice as infectious as the infamous Delta strain. Omicron's differing characteristics are due to its plentiful mutations. About 50 have been identified, 32 of which are present on the spike protein itself, which is pretty nuts. Mm -hmm. The spike protein, as we know, is the grappling hook with which SARS-CoV-2 latches onto our cells. And it's also the primary target of the antibodies that you were talking about, both monoclonal, which you have experience with, and the ones the antibodies generated through your body's own immune response, whether through infection or immunization. These changes to such an important fundamental piece of the virus obviously make for some fundamental changes to how the virus will behave when it enters the body. The spike protein can evolve to become more effective in two primary ways. One, by enabling the receptor binding domain, RBD, to adhere more tightly to your cells, and two, by improving the spike protein's ability to evade antibody defenses through other structural changes. Omicron is doing both of these, which is kind of freaky. What have you heard so far about Omicron? I'll say from a patient perspective and from my general understanding of the new variant's mechanism of action, I understand that it binds a little bit higher to the first cells it makes contact with via that ACE2 receptor that we've talked about so much in the nasal passages, which is interesting in a sense that that would limit the amount of viral load um, within the patient's circulatory system, which if it's binding highly to cellular receptors in the nasal passages, you typically hear from patients that they have a lot more sinus problems mm-hmm. with the Omicron variant, Omicron, 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 Omicron. <laughs> we, we've been hearing a lot of sinus infections, um, kind of similar to what, you know, we, it used to be flu-like symptoms where they'd get the chills and the fevers and the diarrhea mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Now it's a lot more like a common cold infection from what I understand from patients that are right. testing positive. It's a lot more sinusy, head cold um, type of symptoms, a lot less, uh, you know, whole body um, infection. It's a lot more um, head up or mm-hmm. neck up, I should say, Yeah. which of course that would make it more infectious. The th- The theory that I think proves fatal in some of the patient populations that I'm, I've heard from them directly is that it's not nearly as deadly. I would strongly advise against that theory for right now, as there hasn't been enough studies to show that it's not nearly as deadly. COVID-19 in general hasn't been exactly the most deadly virus that we've ever experienced. Right. I mean, i.e. the 1918 flu pandemic was significantly more deadly than than this per patient. But the high level of infectiousness, Mm -hmm. if you're unvaccinated and you have a mild case of COVID, day one, you feel fine. You might just have, you know, a couple head colds. Before you know it, your oxygen saturation is in the low 80s and you're in the hospital. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always recommend my patients that test positive get a pulse ox. Most people don't offer that. I think like a lot of the retail pharmacies do offer some pulse oxes. I remember my time at a chain pharmacy, we offered pulse oxes. I don't think there's been too many recommendations for it, but I've always told my patients, it's a really good indicator of whether or not you need to be thinking about staying in quarantine or whether or not going to the hospital needs to be an option Mm -hmm. for you. Um, Typically, I recommend to people 
you know, I tell them it's a zero to 100 scale. If you're less than 90 on that sat on, on that oxygen saturation, you need to start thinking about going to the hospital. Yeah. It's, it, at the core of it all, it's a respiratory disease and that's, what's going to kill you if you don't, if you don't tackle it up front. Right. And that's some of the things that, that I will talk about, how, what makes Omicron different. Firstly, though, like what you were talking about earlier with the treatment options that we have that have been really prevalent with the other strains, Omicron, because of these new changes to the spike protein, it's not affected by monoclonal antibodies, or at least not as much. This is where the monoclonal antibodies fall short, primarily due to their specificity. What makes them really good at treating tons of other other things, other diseases with generally mild side effects makes them not so great as a class at treating something like a variant. The target that they're aiming for is so precise, so narrow, that small changes in the target can have a big impact on the overall outcome. When you look at something like the major mutations in the Omicron spike protein, it's wearing a whole new uniform, and the antibodies may not recognize it anymore. Human immune-generated antibodies, however, are a little bit different. Based on genetics, gender, age, or underlying medical conditions, everyone's response to a vaccine is going to be a little bit different, and this produces different sets of antibodies. With this human variability, whether engendered through vaccination or previous infection, the variant's evasiveness could be greatly diminished. The mutation allows it to evade most of the existing monoclonal antibody treatments, with Regeneron's drug seeming to have the best outcomes right now, and this is very preliminary stuff. The vaccines will certainly provide a degree of protection against Omicron. However, we have already seen a larger percentage of breakthrough cases with Omicron versus the original or even with Delta. There is some good news, however, because when it comes to evolution, the virus that kills its host is not a good virus. It's a stupid virus. Mm -hmm. The best virus is one that coexists with its host, herpes, for example. Doesn't kill people, just chills in your body forever, reaping the benefits of a rent-free existence. I'm painting in really broad strokes here, I know, but essentially Omicron seems to have a much lower mortality rate, which is really good news. When you look at it in terms of evolution, a highly transmissible but less virulent pathogen is going to be more successful because it's able to infect more hosts. Viruses mutate and evolve to increase their longevity. When a virus evolves into a more virulent or deadlier strain, it's ultimately less prosperous as a pathogen because it eventually runs out of hosts or opportunities to infect. And when I say that Omicron has a lower mortality rate, this is also very preliminary, just because we've seen these massive spikes in the number of cases, but the number of deaths is not proportional. Mm -hmm. It's climbing, but not as dramatically as the number of cases. So this is a very, very early conclusion. We might even be jumping to conclusions here, but it seems to not, at this at this point in time, not have as high of a mortality rate. Here's what I don't like about those reports, and I'm glad we brought it back up, because it alludes to a little bit of what I was talking about previously with mortality rates. You can't necessarily say that just because this strain has a lower mortality rate than, say, Delta doesn't make it deadly. And I think a lot of news media outlets see the headlines that are available in the stories after these studies come out. Omicron has a lower mortality rate, you know, which translates to most people. It's ridiculous. Just because it's less deadly, it, it, that's all they say. They don't say it's more infectious. They just say it's less deadly. Mm-hmm. Well, now you definitely don't have to wear your mask in Walmart, despite all the mask mandates. Oh, no. It's ridiculous. I can't go to Walmart anymore. And those are, these are the people that are testing positive. Yeah. And these are the people that that they just say, well, can I get my monoclonal antibody infusion? You know, <sighs> that's not how that works. Also, it doesn't really work as well for Omicron. Yeah, they, they don't realize <laughs> that. And I, I 
guess we should bring it up. This is not based on any any study I've ever seen, but it just makes me wonder based on how much good in terms of, of a societal impact that these monoclonal antibodies are doing. If we're introducing antibodies into the human system, say for a Delta variant, it works, but the surviving viruses now recognize the antibodies that we're able to produce against the virus, which makes me think, well, coronavirus is not typically a mutatable uh, uh, virus. They don't typically mutate this fast. We saw it with SARS and MERS. We beat them really quick because they didn't mutate. COVID has been very different. SARS-CoV-2 has mutated significantly over the past two years, much more at rates than we ever would have expected at the start of the pandemic. And it just makes you wonder, maybe there's some resistance being built up based on the amount of monoclonal antibody treatments we've been giving out. It's always possible that the that the virus the viruses they don't have a necessarily like a conscious effort towards producing resistance. It's like like a bacteria would do where they would uh, develop or or uh, um, what's the word where bacteria have sex. Where they do like horizontal gene transfer and they can like transfer plasmids back and forth. I don't know meiosis. That's not. That's, this is base level biology. That's I don't definitely know. not meiosis. I don't know, man. But no, they can do like they can transfer plasmids back and forth, and they mm-hmm. can confer uh, different avenues for defending against your immune system back and forth in between bacteria. That's how. Uh, that's how E. coli got something from dysentery. This is like way tangential, but that's how. That's what makes E. coli so bad is because it got like the uh, like the diarrhea plasmid from dysentery or something, and now yeah. it like makes you sh- redacted. You know, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so where, wait, where, where the heck was I? Okay. Yeah. Viruses. So when it comes to viruses, it's just like they just mutate when they're replicating just by accident. It, they don't intentionally mutate. However, you're right. If they happen to have a mutation that's like makes them a little bit more resistant, and then you get antibodies. Antibodies are going to kill everything else, and then that it could potentially allow that now resistant virion virus to replicate. And that's not to say Omicron is the only variant left on the board that we're talking about. We still get Delta cases all the time. Yeah. We get, you know, the original COVID cases all the time too. We don't have the PCRs at our store capable of telling you which variant it is. Those are really nice machines that we just don't have the money to yeah. purchase, obviously. Um, it would be nice to have some of those to see what the level and, and the difference is. The only thing we can base it on is the side effect, or not the side effects, but the, uh, the symptoms yeah. that, that patients are experiencing. You know, how many people that you see getting sinus infections that wind up testing positive, mm-hmm. and these aren't for someone that runs a lot of tests, and for those out there that may also run antigen and PCR tests, you can kind of tell based on your eye the amount of positivity that one test is. You can tell if there's a a crap ton of copies of viruses in one test versus another because it'll show up on the test differently. Hmm. Sometimes a a vague positive, you know, something where you're looking at one line and if there's two lines, it's positive. If there's one line, he isn't. If there's a faint little positive there, it might mean that they're early on, they're not experiencing too many symptoms. Oftentimes that I've seen, you'll get something that we refer to in our store as a red hot positive. That's just like a dark blood red line. That's just like, this guy's very infected. Jeez. Sometimes tests take like 10 to 15 minutes, right? Like the at-home ones take 15 minutes. Within the first two minutes, if you're really positive for COVID, you can tell. Really high viral load. Really high viral load. And those are the, typically the people that are on day three, day four, that were waiting. They had a head cold. 
and now they're those typically the sickest ones you can tell immediately jeez i don't know where that was supposed to go but no i mean i mean it's something that we uh, it's interesting i mean this is going to ramble and like bounce back and forth a little bit there's not going to be a narrative structure to this episode i think people if they've made it this far they've already gathered that probably So when we mention that Omicron primarily causes sinus symptoms, and it's typically it, sen- it tends to be in this early stage uh, upper respiratory, which is interesting because with its higher affinity for ACE2 and the changes to the structure of the S protein, the virus lost affinity for a different receptor in the body. Of course, you know where we're going. Yeah, baby. To the temptress. Back to the temptress. We're going to put that little sexy guitar in here. <laughs> the TMPRSS2 receptor, which is heavily expressed in the lungs, whereas ACE2 is only moderately expressed in the lungs. You have ACE2 in the lungs, but not as much. You have a lot more TMPRSS2. <laughs> it's much more plentiful in the upper respiratory system, like the nasopharynx and the nasal passages, uh, ACE2 is rather, as well as the bronchus. This lack of affinity for the temptress means that the disease very minimally affects the lungs. It still can, it's just not going to be as plentiful as Delta or, or any of the other strains that have a higher affinity for temptress. Right. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, the death toll while climbing is not proportional to the skyrocketing rates of infection. We're not out of the woods yet. Omicron is still definitely bad news. In the event of severe disease, while you may not require intubation necessarily, it's still unknown whether Omicron will impact the rest of the body similarly or not, or whether patients with Omicron will see similar complications and sequelae like DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation that has become so infamous in cases of severe COVID-19. I mean, it's requiring constant anticoagulant therapy, not even prophylaxis, like actual treatment, and people are needing amputations because they're getting multiple massive deep vein thrombosis. It's just nuts. It's, it's, it's insane. While the treatment options for Omicron are fewer, the disease right now seems to be milder. It would be naively hopeful to say that we're nearing the end of the pandemic, as there's still a long way to go before we're rid of this beast. But I feel like the light at the end of the tunnel is a little bit brighter. And here to bring us more light at the end of the tunnel talk, Cal Vandergrift has some information on the two recently approved treatments for COVID-19. I told you that you'd get a segue. Yeah, that was nice. That was, that was cute. So I think we're going to talk a little bit more openly about these two treatments. I've looked at both of the treatment trials, what they were attempting to accomplish and what they wound up accomplishing. Because Merck and Pfizer, which are the two companies that have produced this, you knew. I mean, we talked about Merck way back in the day yeah. when we were t- we were crap posting on Merck. Uh, <laughs> they, you knew they were going to get into the, mm-hmm. the COVID mix somehow. This is their avenue how to do it. So there's two trials right now. First one that was posted was the, I believe it was the Malnipiravir trial, mm-hmm. the Merck trial. And so far, it looks appealing. They showed benefit in interim analysis. I'll, basically, for those who don't know, interim analysis is data collected and analyzed prior to the completion of a trial. Mm-hmm. So like you know they'll they'll have enough data to say 50% of their target population. Like for example, let's see. Uh, the molnupiravir had 1,400 patients in it total or something like that, somewhere close to 1,400 patients. At 50% completion when they've analyzed and, and recorded 700 patients, they'll stop and they'll say, let's look and see what we're doing and see if it's beneficial. If it isn't, 
we're just going to stop, which is what happened with Add a Canyon Map. Yeah. If it is showing benefit, we'll continue it to the completion of the trial. Futility. Right? Yeah, it's a futility yeah. analysis, exactly. And there's different types of interim analysis, but the general class of that type of data collection is called interim analysis. Anyways, at interim analysis, so this was somewhere in September they did interim analysis, and they showed that the risk of hospitalization for any cause or death through day 29, which was they looked at day one when they first tested positive to day 29 for mild to moderate cases. The cause of any hospitalization or death was significantly lower with 28 patients out of 385 requiring hospitalization, which is 7.3% compared to the placebo, which is 14.1%. The p-value was like 0.0001. It worked really well. When they finally got done and they actually looked at the full uh, results, it also showed benefit, a little bit less benefit, I would say. Out of the 709 patients that were on molnupiravir, 6.8% required hospitalization, which was lower than the original 7.3, but it was still a lot compared to just 9.7% of mm -hmm. placebo, which on paper, that looks really good. It shows statistical significance. I think what we need to talk about is the clinical impact of that. That's a 3% difference between placebo and the actual molnupiravir, which sounds good in theory, but if three out of every 100 patients is just staying home instead of going to the hospital, that's not a huge difference like we were expecting mm -hmm. to see with these for obvious reasons. It's an oral antiviral. It's pretty selective. It's not like ritonavir or, or any of the other um, broad spectrum anti uh, antivirals that we've been giving in hospital like remdesivir and whatnot. It's more, it's more specific, but it's still not doing a great job at keeping people out of the hospital. There was only a 20 patient difference, a 700 patient group analysis for maldipiravir, which I think they equated to a 30%, like 30-something percent survival benefit, mm -hmm. which is not super significant. However, it showed enough benefit to where the United States pulled the trigger, yeah. and now they've they've purchased 3.5 million tablets of molnupiravir for use. I don't think the treatment regimens have been fully stamped out yet, even though they've already bought and are starting to dispense this. They'll probably follow pretty strictly what the clinical trials were. I didn't read enough into it to see exactly what the treatment regimen was. Yeah. Um, I probably should have done that, but just real quick for anyone who's looking at mechanisms of action, I wanted to point out the molnupiravir is a small molecule ribonucleoside prodrug of a, a part of your DNA called N-hydroxycytidine, okay. NHC. There's a lot of nucleoside analog drugs on the market, sure, yeah. particularly in cancer. You also have like fluorouracil. Um, there's so many more for cancer. But um, there's also, there are a lot of other things too. Trimethoprim is a nucleoside analog, right, yeah. part of a part of Bactrim, you know. There's a lot of different uses for nucleoside analogs. Basically what they do is they go into your DNA and they mimic something. It's like it's like your own type of mutation. They'll go into your DNA, or in this case a virals, a, you know, a virus's um, RNA, and they'll go in and they'll change just enough things to make it non-infectious again, hmm. which is really a beautiful idea that we've that we've made in the last 20 years that we've developed so many of these. The important part of it all is that this showed a good amount of benefit. That's that's the good thing to show. It showed decent benefit. But now let's talk about the Pfizer drug. Yeah. This one was a lot better. So I don't this know is if you Paxlovid, right? This is Paxlovid. Okay. The two actual names of the drugs are ritonavir, which we've already discussed 
pretty frequently in, in yeah, terms of treating existing, for COVID. It's an existing drug. It is. And the actual drug that didn't have a name until very recently, which is Nermatrelvir. I know, I don't like it either. But that is part of the Paxlovid treatment. Mm. This one has not reached full completion. It won't do that until estimated around April of 2022, so a few months from now. The only things that got released was back in November, they released the interim analyses, and that showed a ridiculously good benefit. It showed somewhere in the rate of 88% survival benefit compared to like 30-something for molnupiravir. Mm-hmm. Problem is it's Pfizer, and Pfizer is notorious for charging a lot for their medications. Mm-hmm. That's obviously being done by the government as of right now because of the EUA order for it. So they offered 10 million tablets to the United States which they've already purchased, and this one is going to start getting pretty immediate dispensing. I I looked at their trial because the only thing that you can look at right now is on the Pfizer website. Now keep that in mind. Most cases, that's a pretty big red flag. You'd like to see that published in a major journal. Malnipiravir was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's a a big, big place to publish. Right now, the only one for Paxlovid is on the Pfizer website. That doesn't look very good. On their blog. Yeah, exactly. On their vlog. On their Twitter. (laughs) But that's for a good reason. The the trial hasn't finished, right? So you can't can't just publish incomplete studies. You know, heaven forbid anyone would ever do that and then call it a top treatment for Alzheimer's or nothing. But (laughs) Sick burn. (laughs) Yeah. Aducanumab reference. Screw aducanumab. So the big difference in this trial compared to the molnipiravir was that the patients that were on Paxlovid had to be unvaccinated. Interesting. Yeah, molnipiravir was a little bit um, less specific on that. You could have... Uh, vaccinated patients, you could have unvaccinated patients. That wasn't an exclusion criteria. It was for Paxlovid. That's weird. That is weird, isn't it? Yeah. You'd think with mild to moderate COVID, it wouldn't matter whether or not you were vaccinated. Right. Um, Especially for a small drug molecule. I feel yeah. like potentially it pre- could preclude a monoclonal antibody for some reason, mm-hmm. but not for a small drug molecule. I don't see that. And particularly for the Omicron strain, where monoclonal antibodies and, and antibodies that your body are producing yeah. have been res- re- resistant against yeah. these. The only thing I can say, the reason why they would have done that is more than likely due to the fact that it was started in, back in May of 2021. We didn't know about the Omicron variant at this point, or if we did, it was a lot smaller than it is now. We were talking a lot more about Delta. Mm, and the big D. Yeah, the big D, Delta. So just some exclusion criteria, inclusion criteria that I just wanted to mention. In Paxlovid's trial, uh, you had to have at least one or more comorbid condition. That's everything that you might have ever thought of. Interesting. That diabetes. Was an, that's an inclusion it's factor. An inclusion it's usually criteria. like if you have diabetes or something or any kind of comorbid condition, that's an exclusion mm-hmm. factor. That's really interesting that yeah. it's an inclusion factor. And they really loosened that because they wanted patients in this trial. They wanted to get it done as quick as possible. So if you had a BMI of over 25, you were included in the trial if you were unvaccinated and had COVID-19. 25 is nothing. That's low, isn't yeah. it? That's like normal. That's BMI considerations for overweight, but that's not a comorbid condition. Typically, we'd think obesity would be a comorbid condition over 30. You know? I'm a little insulted by that. A little, I feel like right? that's close to my BMI. I don't my know BMI what my is BMI is. My BMI is north of 30, and I would definitely have <laughs> included, been included. There's also some things, like if you're an asthmatic, if you're a current smoker, you could have been included. You had sickle cell disease, which kind of popped off the page at me, like sickle cell disease is in the top that's comorbid factor. That's an inclusion factor? Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Some other things. These are all the things that would 
even neurodevelopmental disorders you could even be included. Let me just say that this is this is all of these comorbid factors are known diseases to cause progression to severe COVID. They've okay, been shown benefit. Yeah. So that's that's the real reason why they're doing it. In both trials, they had subjects included if it was less than five days or less than or equal to five days after symptom onset. It looks like the Paxlovid was a 12-hour tablet given every five days. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be th- 300 milligrams of nermotrelvir and 100 milligrams of ritonavir. And they did the same type of trial. They said from one, 0 to 28 days in their case. And it showed pretty good benefit. One of the problems that you always see in some of these trials that get that try to get published really quickly is bad dispersion of patient populations. What I mean by that is 72% of patients were were white, non or were Caucasian. 5% were African American or black. 14% were Asian. This one did good in terms of mean age and sex. I think 51% were male. That's fine, you know. That that's close enough. Uh, the molnupiravir one was the one that had issues with the with the um, the gender and sex of the of the patients. I think something like 78% were male patients that received molnupiravir. Yeah, which doesn't paint the full spectrum. Although I will say, I think from a recent study I read, something like 63% of all hospitalized COVID patients are male. Yeah, which um, that you could attribute that largely to the uh, resistance on more male populations from receiving the vaccine. Yeah. Um, also, just the propensity for COVID to bind to the temptress receptor, which has a higher right. prevalence in, in male. Well, I guess that wouldn't necessarily... Inc- oh, wait a minute. It wouldn't necessarily affect infection rates, but could affect severity of disease. Mm-hmm. So if you get infected, you're more likely to have severe disease because you've got more temptress. Males also have a propensity to develop more comorbid factors than that's females true. do. Yeah. Um, that That's a big... That's a big factor. Men but suck. Yeah, we're the worst. <laughs> but anyways, this one showed really good interim analysis. Um, I think event rates in the Paxlovid group was like out of 700 patients that they've already analyzed, only five of them were hospitalized, mm-hmm. which was really good compared wow. to placebo, which was about 44 mm-hmm. and nearly the same amount of patients. However, the primary variant that they've identified at interim analysis was Delta. Delta was 98% of the patient Ooh, population. Very interesting. Okay. Which might not help too much with Omicron. I mean, it still could help with the, with the variant, but it doesn't help us understand the new Omicron variant right. very well. That's kind of all we have right now with, with the Pfizer uh, drug, the, the Paxlovid, but it's already being released for emergency use authorization, which in most most times I'm resistant to accept EUA designation for, for cases since COVID started. That has been blown out of proportion with what drugs have been EUA yeah. approved, but um, this one looks pretty good. It lo- The interim analysis, I like more than molnupiravir. I think both drugs show some benefit from preventing hospitalization. I think the important part that we still need to mention is that no matter what, you still need to get vaccinated from COVID-19. Bingo. I think most cases, whether or not they're testing, they're using these pills for unvaccinated people or vaccinated people, regardless, vaccination rates have shown extreme benefit Mm -hmm. for preventing hospitalization. I tell every single patient that tests positive for that, as soon as you get done with COVID-19, don't expect to be immune from any other development. Uh, I tell patients all the time that... That sometimes they worry that they get vaccinated and they assume that they can just go maskless from this point on once they're fully vaccinated. 
I tell all of the patients that I see that's not the case. I try to limit it as, as easy to understand as possible. It's not a slight. I, I just try to do that. I call the vaccine damage control. I think it's really good for preventing hospitalization, but you still can obviously get COVID despite being vaccinated against COVID-19. Hmm. Um, I think a lot of patients understand that, and I would highly recommend if there's any healthcare providers out there to use that that terminology with them because it seems like they really understand it when you refer to it like that. Yeah, I've always I like that analogy. I like damage control. I might employ that and see how that, that fares. But I've always, and I haven't used this, but I, I want to use the analogy. Vaccine is a seatbelt. The mask is an airbag. That's cool. I like because, that. Because, I mean, if you get hit, you want both, right? Mm, of course. At least I do. Yeah. Two seatbelts if I'm, you know. Yeah. That's true. God, that's a good analogy too. I like that. You can't use it. Sorry. No. Oh, is that one limited? Yeah. That's restricted. It's $5 each time okay. you do. I'll keep, Just Venmo I'll keep using damage control then. That's I, fine. So I wanted to make like one quick clarification on a thought that I had earlier so I don't seem like a total idiot. But when I was thinking about sickle cell, sickle cell anemia, when I was thinking about that, I was just thinking about the fact that it probably has a really high propensity for DIC, the intravascular coagulation, just because their blood cells are much more prone just to clotting anyway. So I'd imagine that an infection with COVID would have a marked increase in risk for DIC. That That's really frightening. Yeah. I wanted to mention one more thing before we wrap up. And that's, um, I, I was reading an NPR uh, article before we started filming, and I wanted to, I wanted to point this out because this is, this is big news. Um, I mentioned the supply that the U.S. has already bought. Um, the problem that a lot of pharmacies are facing right now as of January 1st, 2022, is that there is a, you can't even call it a shortage yet, but it's really hard to get these pills. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to get them. We... Our pharmacy was very lucky in the sense that we were offered, I forget which one, I hope. I think it's the Paxlovid, I hope I'm right on that, but we got 100 tablets. That's it? First. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the baseline. Each pharmacy is getting 100 tablets. Um, a lot of these tablets, I mean a lot of these tablets, are going to hospitals instead of pharmacies, which does not make sense to me. It doesn't make sense that they're going to hospitals because these drugs are not meant to treat severe COVID. Mm-hmm. Their, their EUA is not based on severe COVID. It's based on mild to moderate cases. Most hospitals are not taking in mild to moderate cases. From what I understand, you have to have an oxygen saturation of less than 88% to even be admitted into some hospitals in our area right now. Wow. So you are not going to get into a hospital and need these drugs. It's not about that. It's never been about that. Typically, in that case, you just need to start on the dexamethasone and, and what we've been using, the tocilizumab and all these other things that we've been using. It doesn't make sense to me that they're going to hospitals. There's a big scarcity in rural states like Indiana, in Ohio, in Wyoming, that I understand that they're not even really being offered these pills at this time for their pharmacies. That sucks. And in places like Idaho, where it's the only state in the country where pharmacists are actually full-on providers and in their state, they're the only state that have full provider status hmm. in the country, you'd think a state like that would really necessitate the need for pharmacies to be able to get these COVID pills. Mm-hmm. But it's just not happening right now. I expect our 100 pills to go away in a week. And then what? You I mean, know? That's, that's what? That's 10 patients? Did you say Maybe. it's, it's tw- every 12 hours for five days? Mm-hmm. That's 10 patients. Well, every 12 hours, two pills. Yeah, it's 10 patients. Yeah. That doesn't work. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah. That's going to be your staff. We do that you five to your seven. Staff yeah, if we if do there's s- an outbreak. And with monoclonal antibodies, we do five to seven a day. Wow. So I, I, and that's, that's, on a, that's on a good day. I mean, there's oftentimes we could get up to 10, 12 patients in a day. 
there's just no way. There's no way that's going to sustain itself. And that's that's kind of the, the situation we're dealing with right now. Shipments are not coming in for these COVID pills. They're probably not going to. From what I understand, we're supposed to get a shipment of them sometime this week because we stopped all of our monoclonal antibody treatments because that EUA is going to go away. It's a tricky place we're in right now for mild to moderate COVID. Oftentimes, you know, you might recommend just stick it out. You know, it's that's the brutal truth of it. I was a healthy 20-year-old when I caught COVID, and I had probably a moderate case of COVID. Mm-hmm. knocked me on my butt for two weeks. But at the same time, you, you just have to stick it out sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. It's tough to say that to patients, though, because they want a treatment. They, they hear that they've tested positive for COVID, and they want an answer. Yeah. And even though these COVID pills are out and are a bright light, I wouldn't say it's an answer yet. Not until we get a big enough supply. I agree. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.